God, the best maker of all marriages, combine your hearts in one. Shakespeare, Henry V. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 24, The Meaning of Marriage, After Hours with Kathy Keller. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favourite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly and deliberately working our way through Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And this month, we've been talking about Eros, romantic love. So today, we welcome the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Meaning of Marriage. You might know her as Timothy Keller's better half, Kathy Keller. Kathy Keller was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and when she was 12 years old, she corresponded with someone that you might have heard of, a professor by the name of Clive Staples Lewis. She first received a BA in English, and then went on to receive a Master of Theological Studies, summa cum laude, from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. This is where she met her future husband, Timothy Keller, and together they have three adult sons. After graduation, Kathy and Tim helped lead a Presbyterian church in Hopewell, Virginia, after which they moved to Philadelphia, where Kathy served as an editor at Great Commission Publications. In 1989, the Kellers founded a church I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Besides being a co-founder, Kathy has served in various roles at the church, such as Assistant Director of Communications and Media. She is the author of Jesus, Justice and Gender Roles, and she is the co-author with her husband of the book which we'll be talking about today, The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. Kathy Keller, welcome to Pints for Jack. Thank you so much. I, I still am so curious as to know how you found me. I mean, I'm... <laughs> I was persistent. Ah, okay, fine. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Now, the most consistent thing that my friends said when they found out that you were coming on the show, first of all, was how on earth did you pull that off? But secondly, the most consistent thing they've asked is after the health of your husband, Tim. So before we began, I just wanted to say that there are an awful lot of people praying for you two right now. Well, thank you. And, you know, we can actually feel that. We can, It was very clear when we first moved to New York that there were so many people praying for us. In fact, I think it might have been the single most prayed for church plant in the history of the Christian church, including the original churches that Paul was planting. I mean, we were the recipients of the women in the church love gift that year, and Presbyterian churches have things called circles. They were small groups before people had small groups. And in every circle you have a little donation box you put your dollar or your quarter in every time and I was supposed to write um, missions letters to them and tell them how things were going they were the whiniest most self-pitying <laughs> mission letters anybody had ever heard where am I going to find a soccer team for my son who loves soccer where am I going to find an allergy where are they going to play outside oh me oh my and all of those women thought, oh, my goodness, I can't believe she's being asked to go there with her kids. I'm so glad it's not me. So they prayed up a storm. And we had probably thousands of women in the churches praying for Redeemer, praying for our family. And we were really able to tell it. And we are able to tell it now, too, with Tim's health. And that's what you asked about initially. Um, 
We're coming up on his second anniversary, which right now puts him in very um, stratospheric statistical terms. He's a real outlier because pancreatic cancer is uh, usually very swift, but he's responded extremely well to the first line of chemotherapy, but they all fail in the end. So he's on the second line of chemotherapy now. And we enrolled um, in a trial at the NIH before he started any chemotherapy for some trial on TIL, T-I-L therapy, where they use your own T cells to fight your cancer. It's very particular. It doesn't fight this cancer or that cancer, best breast cancer or pancreatic cancer. It fights Tim cancer. It's your own T cells that have been weaponized against your own tumor. Actually, Tim's cancer has been too small and too insignificant for him to be allowed into the trial. So, um, you know, they want to find the sweet spot where it's big enough to be measurable, but not so big that it's actually endangering you. So we're waiting to hear from them as to when and if he would be a candidate for that trial. But he's doing very well. He's teaching all of his classes. He has a new book coming out in the fall on forgiveness. We see our grandchildren. I mean, he's never had any day at all that he's had sickness except the chemo sickness, which is kind of... Mm. He's doing well, and it's, I'm sure it is due to the prayers of, of God's people. I'm really quite convinced of that. When I was talking about this interview with my co-hosts, uh, I reminded Matt of something that someone once said to him. He was getting up to give a talk at church, and somebody said, Matt, seriously, two C.S. Lewis quotations, no more. And I said, I bet the same is true with Tim and Kathy. I bet she's saying, okay, Tim, go preach, but two C.S. Lewis quotations, no more. <laughs> well, he's actually smarter than that. Whenever he has a number of C.S. Lewis quotations, he will stop identifying the author. He'll say, as one writer said. Or... <laughs> I do the same thing with my wife. It's like, oh, I read in a book somewhere, and she knows exactly the author. Yes. There was a wonderful line in the book, which we'll talk about, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, where somebody told him, when you've prepared more, you quote from a wide range of sources. When you prepare less, they're all from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> well, today I am drinking, appropriately enough, a Presbyterian. This is a cocktail that I found. It's basically bourbon, ginger ale, and soda water. Do you have something to toast with? I do, yes. It is uh, lemon ginger tea, but it's very exotic in that it has Meyer lemon in it. Sounds fancy. Cheers. Cheers. So. I've done a deep dive into your life over the past few weeks, <laughs> uh, but for people who haven't stalked you on the internet and read your wiki page, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself? In particular, I, I read that you weren't raised in a particularly religious home. So how was it that you first came across Lewis? I grew up in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, which was a bedroom community on the outskirts of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was really on the outskirts. It was an unincorporated township. We didn't have a library. We didn't have a lot of things. But there was a green bus that was a bookmobile that came once a week to the parking lot of the shopping center, the little shopping center where there was a grocery store and that sort of thing. And uh, you entered at one end and exited on the other and in between picked out all the books that you wanted. And I remember very clearly at one point telling the librarian slash bus driver that I had read a very good book about a lion and a witch, but I couldn't remember who wrote it and what the rest of the title was. And she said, oh, I know what that is. I'll have it for you next week. And there it was, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So 
My mother said, well, if you like that book, remember the name of the guy who wrote it because maybe you'll find some other ones. Well, you know, it was very hard to find Lewis books in the 50s and the 60s. It took a long time to transit from England over to America. And I would look in card catalogs and bookstores and not find anything. But when I did get my hands on anything by Lewis, whether it was Narnia or something else totally inappropriate for my age, or like, <laughs> you know, your Christianity or the Great Divorce or something like that, I would just read it. And as he said of reading, um, um, what's his name? Scottish uh, Curdy. Uh, his imagination was baptized. He was, uh, he was talking about Fantasties, which I have to admit I have tried and tried to read and never gotten all the way through, but didn't <laughs> baptize my imagination. But his books baptized my imagination. And when somebody tried to point out that Aslan really was supposed to be Jesus, I mean, it was kind of clear with the death and resurrection, I just didn't buy it for the longest time because the Jesus that I heard about in Sunday school was boring and walked around in these robes and you know he had there was no point of contact between my life and his life but Aslan was you know warm and immediate and you know you wanted to, to put your hands in his fur and dance with him like Lucy and Susan so it was it was just reading Lewis I, I did not read any other Christian books I didn't know about other Christian authors I just read everything of his I could get my hands on. I think the first non-C.S. Lewis book I ever read might have been The Cross and the Switchblade, or possibly it was a Francis Schaeffer book right before I went away to college. But I got through college just being able to refer to my C.S. Lewis corpus and did my thesis on Lewis. Um, I think it's sitting here right next to me under a pile of stuff. Oh, cool. <laughs> So if your home wasn't particularly religious, uh, you were reading Lewis, how was it that you became a practicing Christian? Well, um, my parents took us to church weekly. I guess something must have, by the process of osmosis, you know, must have gotten through to us. My, my father uh, was, did not have any personal faith. He, he thought if God didn't want to save everybody, he should just line everyone up from the worst person to the best person. And however generous he was feeling, just take first 10 or maybe 15 percent and he was sure he'd be in that because he was a faithful husband and a good father and a straight arrow at work and I mean I would I didn't know enough at the time to say dad that's works righteousness but I mean that's what he thought the whole thing was mm. I don't think I understood anything about Christian doctrine about substitutionary atonement about being a sinner who had to have my debt before God paid for until I was in seminary but I knew that God had claimed my life, and it's, it's a very, I hate to tell the story, it's printed in a, an Australian magazine. They wanted an interview with Tim, and I said, would you take one with me? Figured the story would be buried down under, and nobody would find it. <laughs> the internet, nothing's buried. Mm -mm. My dog got sick, and my dog, I was such a, a solitary child, my dog was really the most important thing in the world to me, not my siblings or my parents or anyone else. And I was trying to pray for my dog to get better. So I, the only prayer I knew was, Our Father, our heart in heaven, hell be the name of the kingdom. You know, I raced through that <laughs> and get to the part where I cried and said, Please get, make my dog get better. And one night I was trying, you know, racing through the Lord's Prayer and I got to the point where, Thy will be done. 
and felt like I had run full tilt into a brick wall because I did not want God's will to be done if unless that was my dog getting better. I wanted my will to be done. And it felt like I was, you know, a, a beetle pinned to a card with floodlights on it, that Kafkaesque image, where, you know, all of the powers of heaven and earth, you know, ranged around to see what decision I would make, floodlights on me and all. Is it going to be thy will be done? In which case, as soon as God gets his hands on you, your life is going to be so miserable. The dog will die. You'll end up a missionary in a buggy place with a pith helmet and you'll never get married. Because that's all God wants to do is make your life miserable. But if I say my will be done, well, that's sort of a losing proposition too because God being God and me being me, that was I was not going to come out the winner. It felt like it was, an, it was an eternal moment. And I finally just broke down in tears and said, well, I, I have to say that I will be done and just dissolved in tears knowing I'd signed my dog's death warrant because, of course, God wanted only to make, you know, get, like I say, make you unhappy as soon as you got, he got his hands on your life. And only time in my life, here I am a Presbyterian, inside my head, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I did hear the words in my head, it's not your dog's life I wanted, it's your life. So I ran down and told the dog she was going to be okay, and God wasted a perfectly good miracle on making a beagle who was suffering from spinal degeneration and paralysis well enough to hunt with my dad for the next four years. So that was not very informative as far as biblical doctrine, but I knew God had claimed my life. So what actually happened was I became a raging works righteousness person. I, I was, you know, special. I was picked out. I was unique. Uh, God was my hobby. I was different than all the other people in my junior high and high school. I, and it wasn't really until I heard about true biblical doctrine in seminary that I, I really think I got it for the first time. So where did I get converted? I don't know. <laughs> but I know that's what God claimed me was over the dog when I was about 14. And all the preparation for that was Lewis. There was no other input. Oh, that's so cool. So how did you and Lewis become pen pals? How old were you at the time? I would not call him a pen pal. Um, oh, I totally I, would. I would absolutely claim that. I would no, print it out no, on my no. business cards. <laughs> he came from a generation that felt like it was a sacred obligation to answer all your letters no matter how much drudgery and actual pain was involved. He had rheumatism in his hands, and it was actually difficult for him to write all these answers. I mean, that's how Joy Davidman first, you know, interacted with him is through letters, because he answered his post. In fact, there's a quote from him somewhere where he says, heaven will not have any postman in it. I don't think he meant to say, you know, there, no postman would ever be saved, but no one would come bringing letters <laughs> that he had to answer in heaven. That would be heaven for him. He was just answering a fan letter. So the very first letter I got was just, dear reader, thanks. I'm glad you like my books. Because I thought, since I couldn't find his books anywhere, I thought he was some struggling unknown writer in Britain that needed encouragement. Mm. I had no idea that he was a very famous author and broadcast talks and, you know, all of the rest of it um, until much, much later when I 
was older and people started doing research on Lewis and I started doing research on Lewis. So I just wrote him a very gushy letter and then I would write him about my, my very small doings. I wrote him one time, uh, was, uh, wrote a letter, or not letter, I wrote an article, a mystery story. Fiction has never worked well for me, but I did write a mystery story for my junior high school newspaper and it didn't actually fit the space they had and the editor was as, as inexperienced as I was. Rather than take out a word here, a word there, a line here, a line there, she just chopped off the last paragraph where all is revealed and <laughs> made nonsense of the whole article. So I complained to him about that and he did the whole, um, you know, the scene in Narnia where he makes all of the, the statues alive again and he says us lions will be up in the front mm -hmm. so he was saying us writers you know we have to just put up with it i've had many tangles with uh, editors before you know us writers just have to put up with it and i think i ran around going yeah us writers me it's us <laughs> i mean i didn't even know enough to call jack but it was <laughs> it was so generous and in including me in the fellowship of writers with my eviscerated mystery story in my junior high school newspaper Again, I'd put that on my business card. I just wrote him about whatever was going on in my life, like he'd be interested. Generous man that he was, he wrote back. If you read C.S. Lewis's letters to children, there are an awful lot of really thoughtful letters. Mine aren't among them. I mean, people <laughs> had really interesting things to ask him and talk to him about. And I was just chatting the man up. Just trying to give a struggling author a little bit of encouragement. I think, yeah. I think it's really thoughtful. <laughs> I know this isn't on your list of things to talk to me about, but there is one thing that I thought about maybe, maybe 10, 15 years ago. I was thinking, I think it might have been the time at which I actually took the letters out of my Narnia books and framed them because they were getting so tattered. And I thought, you know, there was an actual point in historic time that Jack Lewis thought about me. He thought my name, he wrote my address. I was on his mind, you know, however briefly and however shallowly, I was thought about in the brain of C.S. Lewis. And I, I got all sort of teary about that. And then I thought, what a dunce you are. <laughs> yes, yes, Lewis thought about you, but you know who did it first? Jesus, Jesus <laughs> thought about you. Jesus died for you. Jesus had your name on his lips. Why don't you get excited about that? I was very chastened at the thought that I was more impressed that C.S. Lewis had thought about me than that Jesus had. Oh, I, th I think it can be a both and situation. So people can read your letters in C.S. Lewis's Letters to Children. They can. The last four Cathy's from the back. <laughs> I also looked them up in my Verbum account. I pull the dates of each of the letters. So I'll make sure each of those are in the show notes if people want to track them down if they have the collected letters of Lewis. But they have to look for Kathy Christie because this was before you were married. That's right. I gave copies to the Wade collection. They wanted the originals. And I said, I think the originals are going to mean a lot more to me than they will to you. You can have some Xerox copies, but no, I am not giving you the originals. <laughs> yeah, they've got plenty of stuff. They're fine. Now, did you ever go and visit the kilns? Yeah, I actually did. Uh, one of the letters I was talking to him about was 
uh, coming to visit him, which I, you know, he didn't do anything to encourage. He said it was a wonderful holiday I was saving up for, but he didn't say, yes, do drop by. Uh, I think that was the letter he wrote just 11 days before he died. But on my 14th birthday, I was actually in England. I was babysitter for my English neighbor, and she had a two-year-old and was expecting another child. And the English grandparents had never met her first child. So I was going along as sort of the quasi-nanny. Of course, once the grandparents met their grandchild, I had nothing to do whatsoever. (laughs) Nor was I allowed to touch the poor thing. But on my birthday, as a treat, they drove me up to Oxford and to the kilns, and Warney was still living there, and I guess he was used to having people knocking at the door, maybe not so much as what the flood that came later, but he invited me in, and the house was quite dark, not like it's now. You know, it's Mm. been restored. It's quite light. It was quite, quite dark, heavy furniture. But he did let me pick flowers in the back garden, which I duly pressed in my Narnia volumes until they turned into little crumbs and um, blew away on the breeze. That's not very bright of me, but I've been there since. It's been restored a couple of times. Tim and I, last time we were in Oxford, I think we had tea with the docent who was there, and I was really amazed. They, at one point, um, when they were restoring the house, they had to ask themselves what to do about the ceiling in the living room because it was a nicotine yellow color from all of the smoke. And if they had just painted it white, it wouldn't have been true to the actual life. So they they searched out a nicotine yellow paint, and that's how they painted the ceiling, because that's what it looked like during his lifetime. One of those little note facts. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely revolting. I remember when I first read about them emptying out their pipes onto onto the carpet because they thought it kept away bugs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now I was just going to tell you one more thing that Docent told me, which I wouldn't have known otherwise. After he had married Joy in their brief marriage, she was quite distressed at the neighborhood children who ran around in their orchard. In uh, They had a back garden, but then beyond that, they had a little wilderness, which had trees and things. And kids would go larking around in the trees and she had a shotgun that she would take on their walks, which who knows if it was loaded or not. But um, at one point she's, she is known to have said or thought to have said, get out of my way, Jack, you're spoiling my aim. (laughs) You know, Redeemer has met for years, doesn't any longer, but for years and years we met in Hunter college, which was joy Davidman, Gresham, Lewis's alma mater. Mm. And we offered to restore their auditorium, which was in terrible shape, just torn to bits and paint pieces the size of Volkswagens flying off of the ceiling and fluttering down. And we said, we'll raise the money, we'll give it to you. It's, you know, we don't want any credit for it. You know, if you want to, you could name it after one of your, your graduates, you know, Joy Davidman, they had, this is right after um, uh, Surprised by Joy, the one, the one with Anthony um, Hopkins and oh, Deborah Winger. Had come. Mm-hmm. So they knew the movie, but they had no idea that she was one of their graduates. Huh. But in the end, they were very leery of taking money from a religious organization. So they just 
renovated it themselves and lost all the money we could have contributed and did not name it after Tori Davidman. Oh my goodness. Terrible. Before we move on to the, the topic of marriage, one thing that I would love someone to do at some point is to put together a book of all of the children who wrote to Lewis and find out what they're doing now. I think that would be very interesting because, you know, at the end of Don Treader, whenever he's telling Lucy and Edmund that they aren't going to come back to Narnia, Aslan tells them, you're going to have to learn to know me in your own land. Uh, but, and I'm known by another name there. And if you have been immersed in Narnia, I think you would be very hungry to know Aslan in your own land and want to find him. When they made that movie, by the way, um, Tim and I got to go out to California and meet with, um, I think it was Adamson, who was the director of that one. At any rate, there was a great uh, toing and froing about what bits they were going to leave in and what they were going to cut out. And the director said, oh, we just can't leave that in. That's, there's no place for that. And someone told him, Kathy Keller will be very upset if you take that out. <laughs> he said, who is Kathy Keller? She's very influential and she'll tell everyone not to see your movie, so you better leave it in. I take full credit for that line being in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Which really surprised me when I saw it. I thought they would certainly undercut it. If only they'd found out uh, your opinions about Green Mist, we could have improved that movie several fold. And also given a little bit more time to Edmund's de-dragoning, maybe. Mm. Yeah, the, the whole scene where Eustace is undragoned is just stupid. Stump. It's the it's hardest stupid. book, and they just rush right past it, like, oh, okay, he's not enchanted anymore, move on. <laughs> so let's talk about Eros and marriage, and let's start autobiographical. Can you please tell us about when you first met Tim, and tell us, did you fancy him immediately? Um, it's actually in the introduction of The Meaning of Marriage, uh, a short version of it. Uh, Tim attended Bucknell University, which is where my younger sister, Susan, also went to college. And it began its classes earlier than my school, which was Allegheny College. So I was helping my mother drive some things up to Sue, who, which she had left behind or decided she needed. Wasn't feeling at all well. And um, Sue wanted to show us around. She'd been there a couple of weeks. And there was a house that had been purchased by a wealthy student for the use of the InterVarsity and Young Life leaders that were students on campus. She said, this is the Young Life house. Come in. Let's see who's here. And there was this tall, skinny guy in the corner studying Greek. And I was introduced to, this is my sister, Kathy. This is Tim Keller. Hi, hi. You know, and... Never thought I'd ever see the guy again. He did show up in our home two, three times because Pittsburgh was a center for young life and every New Year's Eve they had a square dance and Sue's young life and university friends would come and sleep on the floor of my parents' basement in order to attend the um, New Year's Eve. So he was just the tall one in the bunch of my sister's friends. And we, saw, I mean, that was, another sort of mild ships passing in the night. Um, when R.C. Sproul opened the Ligonier Valley Studies Center in actual Ligonier, Pennsylvania, 
he had something on Wednesday nights called Gab Fests, where you could ask any question and he would, you know, hash it out in front of you, um, which I could tell you stories about how well that works in churches. It really is a wonderful thing. Models, hmm. not only gives the answer to the questioner, but it models how you answer questions to the Christians. And anyhow, um, and you would introduce yourself before he would start, and I would say, I'm Kathy Christie, and I'll be going to Gordon-Conwell Seminary next fall. And I would nod to Tim, and Tim would, across the room where he was sitting with his family and his friends, he'd nod to me. And we'd get to him, he'd say, I'm Timothy Keller, and I'll be going to Gordon-Conwell Seminary in the fall. And I'd nod to him, and he'd nod to me. But a nodding acquaintance becomes a very close friend when you are 600 miles away from your entourage. Both of us had been leaders on our campus uh, Christian groups, and um, I had been through two unrequited relationships, and he was a safe person to be friends with because he was sort of semi-engaged at the time, which made him safe guy to be friends with. And uh, by the time that relationship disappeared, I was a lot more engaged than just for a friendship model. Um, gosh, do you want all the real dirt around it? Um, <laughs> when uh, this other girl decided she really didn't want to be a pastor's wife or wanted to be his wife, whatever, I thought, because Tim and I were in such, we were so simpatico to, to steal a word that doesn't belong there, um, I thought I would get promoted from friend to girlfriend. And every day that that didn't happen, I mean, Tim and I were so close and we talked about so many things and we had the same opinions and we had the same secret thread that um, George MacDonald talks about. It just didn't make any sense that we wouldn't be together, but he was making no move. And I finally had the pearls before swine talk with him just before we broke for college, for Christmas vacation. Or I said, look, I'm not calling myself a pearl and I'm not calling you a pig. But the point <laughs> is you don't give you don't give pearls to swine because they can't appreciate them. They'd rather you gave them a corn cob. If a pearl just is a rock as far as they're concerned. And every day that you don't choose me, I take it as rejection. You may not mean it that way at all, but you could have chosen me. You didn't choose me. And so I feel as though I was weighed and found wanting. And actually, I can't do that anymore. So we're just going to have to not see each other, not be friends, not talk about everything in the world. You know, that's really the end of the, the end of our relationship. Unfortunately, or in God's providence, fortunately, we had spent the previous semester arranging to take the January term down at Westminster Seminary together with the Jay Adams course and live together in the same house where um, a woman that I had met the previous summer when I worked for Philadelphia Presbytery had three bedrooms and she had one, I have one, Tim had one. And here, having said we're not going to be friends anymore, we were going to live together for a month. So um, that was going to be really, really awkward. But as Tim explained to me later, he, he really couldn't just decide to say, hey, want to go to dinner and a movie because we were at such close friends at that point that if he were to make the relationship into a romantic one, it would be, and what do you think about the names for the children? You know, it was, <laughs> it wasn't, you know, a meeting of people who might like each other. We were so entwined in one another's lives that um, 
moving it onto a romantic status was really a declaration of intent to get married. So that's why he had to make a very big leap to say, yes, I am going to take this into a romantic mode. So no, I, I wouldn't say that either of us fancied the other at the outset, but as we discovered more about each other's secret threads, that's when things started entwining. That's beautiful. <laughs> and how did the rest of the courtship and journey towards marriage, what did that end up looking like? <laughs> well, that was in January, and we were married the following January. Okay. We he officially got engaged in May, but I mean, truly it was the situation that you know, the moment that Tim kissed me, we were talking about marriage. It wasn't a situation where we said, well, let's see how this goes kind of thing. So we knew marriage was the next step in our relationship. So there wasn't really a courtship that our friendship was so deep at that point. It was, it would have been a little bit silly to say, you know, want to go to a movie? <laughs> Now, looking back, what do you wish you'd have known? If you could go back in time and talk to the younger Kathy in the time of courtship or, say, an early marriage, what would you have told yourself? Well, since I really can't speak to any kind of courtship, but I can tell you about the early days of our marriage, we bickered over the tiniest, tiniest things. And I think that was because we were afraid that any small deviance from being of total like-minded was going to fracture the whole relationship, that it would be the end. Mm. The marriage would succeed. If we didn't solve this problem right here, right now, and we would waste every day off, eight hours, and it would start out an argument on some little thing, and then it would be arguing about how you're arguing, and then about how you're not arguing, and about why don't you say anything, and, well, I don't have anything to say. It would just go on and on and on <laughs> and you know later when he had a church um all of these arguments turned up not on our day off to ruin it but saturday night right before he when he was working on his sermon for the next morning it wasn't till about year 15 and i we were embarking on yet another saturday night special that i realized you know our marriage is solid. It's not going to go away. It's not going to break up over whatever this issue is. And I can't, for the life of me, tell you what it was. This can be discussed Monday. It doesn't have to be now or never. I can table it. It's fine. Um, and the reason I know it was 15 years is that R.C. Sproul did our wedding. He, he performed our wedding. So he did a very brief and not very in-depth premarital counseling, but the one thing that he did say, it was quite memorable, that he and Vesta had been married at fifteen for 15 years at that point when he did our wedding. And he thought they were just starting to get the hang of it. And I thought, what? <laughs> 15 years and you're just starting to get the hang of it? And so when we hit around year 15, I thought, you know, I really know what he means. Of course, I also felt that way at 30 years and at 45 years, there are always new layers to discover in a person that you think you've known so well. So um, I guess my advice to a new, my, my newlywed self or to any newlywed is 
calm down. It'll keep. You know, just cool your jets, stand down, soldier, and you can talk about it when it's not 11 o'clock at night and, you know, when you're rested and you can actually speak rationally and not irrationally. Just stand down, soldier, I think would be the summation of my thoughts. I think that's really good advice. Marie and I were very different from each other. And in our dating, that was when we had all of the conflict. Uh, and it was, it was really at the point at which we were both reached some level of, okay, I'm in this, I'm in this. And the, the, it was only really at that point when we felt committed enough to each other and safe enough that we learned to relax a little bit more and let a few more things go. Good, you did the work before. So I'm sure there's plenty still to come, but uh, but yeah, it, it, I I definitely am glad that we got it done earlier rather than later. How many years have you been married? It's not even two yet. Ah, well, many things ahead of you. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, in twenty, I think it's twenty thirteen. Uh, together with your husband, you released the meaning of marriage, facing the complexities of commitment with the wisdom of God. What was it that prompted the writing of this book? Well, when we started the church in 1989 in New York, it was almost completely single people. I would say 95% single people. So why preach a series on marriage? He preached it like two, maybe three years after the church was started. And there might have been a handful of married couples. Um, attending at that point, but mostly it was still single. It's, it stayed 80% single for decades, really, because those were the demographics of New York City, and that was what we were attracting, the demographics. Hmm. So Tim felt that it was really important for single people, and, and he was also preaching expositionally in the evening and going through Ephesians 5. That was what you had to talk about if you're going to talk about Ephesians 5. So he spent some time on marriage out of Ephesians 5, and it was aimed specifically at the single people who were attending because, you know, it was really sort of pointless to aim at married people who were very few and far between. So it was partly just where the um, expositional preaching took him, but it was also because there was a need to talk to single people about their very unrealistic ideas of marriage. And it became, and I think it still is, I was talking to um, the person who handles Tim's tape library, the single most requested set of tapes in his whole preaching history of 1,500 sermons at uh, Redeemer before his retirement from the pulpit, not retirement, but retirement from the pulpit. It was clearly going to be a book that was relevant if the tapes were being requested that often. And so we tried very hard to edit those sermons into a book. I tried it. Um, his secretary tried it. A woman paid to have a professional do it. It resisted all attempts to be edited into a book. So Tim and the final analysis just sat down and wrote the book. I mean, from scratch not using different material, but not using those sermons in their original form. Well, the book itself, who is the ideal target audience? If it was originally preached to singles, is it meant for singles or married couples? I think it gets purchased and handed out as a gift to 
engaged couples more than yeah. anything else. I mean, from Justin Bieber waving it around when he and Haley got engaged, if that's any indication, I guess it's given to or discovered by people who are newly engaged or newly committed in relationships. And um, that was who it was aimed at. It was aimed at people considering being in a relationship and having to deal with their misconceptions or their lack of any conception of what this kind of a new relationship would entail. And what do you think is the main misunderstanding people think about marriage and move towards marriage? What do you think that there's a main misconception that they still hold? That the other person will complete them. You mean Jerry Maguire isn't true? Sorry, Jerry Maguire. Sorry, <laughs> Tom Cruise. No, because the only person that you can marry is another sinner. You're a sinner. And since there's everybody's a sinner, the only people you're going to marry in the, the only people in the pool of marriageable people are other sinners. I'll think for a minute, if you're a believer, what's your relationship to Jesus like on a day-to-day -day basis? Is it always joyful, always exuberant, always, you know, warm and delightful, etc.? No, it is not. And one of you in that relationship is perfect. Now, you're going to be embarking on a relationship not with one of you being perfect, but with both of you being imperfect and having needs of your own and having demands and having um, different love languages, which is another thing people need to find out. It's what the other person's love language is. Um, it's just you will make an idol. To say somebody else completes you is to say I'm making you into the idol in my life. And um, that's very easy to do. In fact, John Newton very clearly says in one of his letters that the biggest danger of a happy marriage is idolatry. And that's definitely true. I would say that's 100% the case. And that's definitely something that Lewis touches on multiple times in The Four Loves, because it's all about the ordering of your loves. That's his main point. Whether it's Storgy, Philia, or Eros, they, they must be ordered correctly and supported by and infused with agape because it's, it's the only thing that we were ultimately made for. Not sure that I'm right. I would ask my research assistant if he could hear me. Um, is Augustine the first person who talked about disordered loves? <laughs> yeah, it's Augustine. Augustine <laughs> came up with that. My research assistant is always... With with COVID and cancer and chemotherapy, he's usually around to answer my um... your early church father questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so you you said that the the main the main issue is people believing that their spouse is going to be able to complete them. Is that the main misunderstanding for Christian couples as well, or do they make different kinds of mistakes? No, I think that's everybody's foundation mistake is a disordered love is that person is um, there, they're present, they've got skin on. God is immaterial and it takes work to have a relationship with him. So it's much easier to demand that the person in front of you be the one who can read your mind and knows exactly what you're thinking and how you're feeling and what you need and what you don't like, etc. I mentioned love language. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the things R.C. Sproul talked to us about. Lots of people have written about it since, like Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. 
Um, RC's example was he, for his birthday, really, really, really wanted a new set of golf clubs. He liked, you know, luxury, frivolous items. But his wife, Vesta, who was very practical-minded, gave him six brand-new white shirts. So for her birthday, thinking in terms of his own love language, he bought her a mink coat when she really wanted a new washing machine. She wanted something practical. Now, that's, that's a very clear and a little bit funny example of what not knowing the other person's love language is. But there, there are real-time consequences of not knowing the other person's love language. And if you need to get that Gary Chapman book, go out and get it. For myself and my wife, our love languages are very different. So that was one of the first things that we had to learn about each other and then actually engage the will. Because when you meet somebody whose love language isn't the same as yours, part of you thinks, why should I have to change? Why can't they just receive love in the way that I like to give? Well, I think all of us in our deepest hearts think we're the center of the universe. That, that, that first cry when a baby is born, that inarticulate, if you had an, a universal translator or the TARDIS was nearby, you would be able to translate that as, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I want somebody to do something about it because I and my needs are more important than anything else. So hop to it, people. I mean, <laughs> if you had a translator, that's what it would say. And I don't think we ever get past that. Well, one of the things that Lewis says in The Four Loves when he's talking about the way that our natural loves might rival God's love. He says, I didn't start it in this place because I don't think this is what most of us need to hear. Most of us have much more of a problem with just basic selfishness. We care more about ourselves than other people, let alone letting our care for other people rival our love for God. Now, for listeners who haven't read your book, uh, what are some of the topics that, that, that people will encounter when they pick up a copy of The Meaning of Marriage? Well, when you asked me that, I thought, good heavens, I haven't actually sat down and read this cover to cover in, since we published it, because you, you're so immersed, immersed in it that you don't find any occasion to, um, to sit down and say, oh, I think I'll read this book. You feel like, oh, I know this so well. Why would I need to do it? But um, if you, uh, I'm, I'm looking at page 41 under The Great Secret. It's the first chapter. What is the secret about marriage? Paul says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husband loves your husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, in short, the secret is not simply the fact of marriage. Per se, it's the message that husbands, what husbands should do for their wives, is what Jesus did to bring us into union with himself. And that is, he gave himself up. For them. I think if that were truly and deeply and correctly understood, so much would be different in the way people approach marriage. That the husband's headship in a marriage is not the power to compel his wife to bring in his pipe and slippers and the remote for the TV. It's the power to be like Jesus. It's the power to serve, to to give yourself up for the other person and be the person where the buck stops and where the, the needs are met. And if nobody is able to fix the problem, then it's your problem. If nobody's able to come to a consensus, you get to be the one that, that dies to yourself, um, oh husband. 
um, because you have the Jesus role. Women have the Jesus role in marriage as well, too. It's not just the men that have the Jesus role because in the sense of uh, Philippians 2, where Jesus was, he laid aside his glory, he became submissive, he became a servant, etc., etc. And I remember when I was debating all of the issues around submission and headship and all of that sort of thing, I thought to myself, you know, if submission did not hurt the second person of the Trinity, it can't hurt me. I mean, not in its essence. It can be misapplied, misunderstood, misused, and often is, and I would say more often it is than it's used rightly. But as a concept, it's not a bad concept. It's not, you know, the scripture hasn't erred in saying headship and submission is how we enact in our marriages the relationship between Jesus and his bride. And it's interesting that in Galatians we're told that all of us, men and women, slave and free, are sons of God. So women have to learn to be sons. But then in Revelation, we're told that all of us, men and women, are the bride of Christ. So all of us have to, the men have to learn from the women how to be a bride, how to be submissive to their husband, who is Jesus. So it's pretty even-handed, I'd say, the gender, the gender role um, assignments in the Bible. When Marie and I... I think we were engaged at this point and we, we were we were talking about this and I, I actually went to Philippians 2 that you referenced there because it's probably my favorite passage from the New Testament when Paul says, have among yourselves the mind that was in Christ Jesus. And he describes a community where people are falling over themselves. They're fighting one another to serve one another. And I remember saying that if if we can make our marriage like that, I can't see how we couldn't survive anything because I'm going to be caring more about your needs than my own and you're going to be doing the same. And in so doing, we're going to be looking out for one another and serving one another as best we possibly can. In, a, in the best marriages, you insert your happiness into the other person's happiness. Your happiness becomes seeing them be happy. Your unhappiness is seeing them be unhappy and therefore... It's, it's a very different model of marriage than the me marriage where you exist to make me happy um, and don't ask me to do anything for you. Of course, if you're both saying that, you're kind of uh, immobilized. Mm. Well, I was going to ask you about complementarianism, but I actually think we really covered it very nicely there. If Unless you've run out of time, I do want to say one other thing about that. Tim and I came to our about headship and submission long before anybody coined that word complementarian. Um, and we, so we can't really identify completely with what people mean when they say complementarian because they've added in all sorts of cultural accretions, which I don't think are biblical. But I think what needs to be done to recover a biblical understanding of headship and submission is to redefine authority the way Jesus did for his disciples. He was forever, when they would be arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, Matthew 20, he would say, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, you know, do this and that, not so with you. You know, the greatest among you must be among you as one who serves. He redefined authority as servant authority, not the power to compel. And 
you see this beautifully lived out. It's right now my favorite word. If I, if I were to be told that everything in the world depended on me writing a book, it would be called so. And that would be based on John 13, where it says, knowing that he was from God and that he was returning from God to God. So he got up, took off his clothes and washed his disciples' feet. So it was based on his his knowledge of who he was and on his worth that allowed him to be the servant of his disciples in a way that made them very uncomfortable, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you, if you are grounded in the knowledge of who you are as a loved child of God, then your, your headship and your submission will both look completely different than what authority looks like in the world. I mean, I despair sometimes because people just use the, they, they think we've kept the, the, wor the world out of our pure doctrine, and yet they have allowed the definition of authority which means I get to make all the decisions and I get to tell you what to do and I get to have everything I want and you get the crumbs. It's just so antithetical to Jesus redefining of what authority and headship and submission mean. So anyway, that's my little sermonette. So thanks for letting me. No, oh, no worries. No, you, you call me Lord and Master and, it, and it's true. But if I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, then you should wash each other's feet. Yeah. Well, if you want to know a little bit more about uh, what people call complementarianism, but <laughs> uh, you can find it more in Kathleen's book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Uh, but as we're starting to wrap up, it's now been nearly 10 years since the two of you wrote The Meaning of Marriage. If you were to add a chapter or two now by you know, way of revision, what might you add or what might you emphasize more after another 10 years worth of marriage? Well, we actually did, and most people don't realize that the... Um couples devotional that's based on the meaning of marriage a lot of people seem to think or the unspoken uh, belief is that it's just a rehash of meaning in marriage put onto daily you know thought for the day kind of thing but in truth 25 percent of that is new content that tim wrote that's never been published anywhere else and the rest of it that has is taken from various places in meaning of marriage has been expanded and explained and enlarged upon and it's not it's not a rewrite of meaning of marriage but as as an addition to it. it and very few people realize that they just think eh, another killer devotional and that's not what i need but it's it's probably needs to be you know taped to every every copy of meaning of marriage that's sold because it's got so many important additions to it well, my wife and I, uh, we have a six-month-old son. If you could offer one sentence of advice from all your years of marriage, what would it be? Hmm. Adding children into the mix changes everything. And you think that you are never going to come up for air. But eventually, they go to school, they get married, they produce grandchildren, and you get your life back. But meanwhile, enjoy them while you have them young, even though it twists your life out of any recognizable shape that you ever thought it would be. Mm. I think children are the biggest challenge in a marriage, to be sure. At least they were with us. Alexander certainly gives us a run for our money. Kathy Keller, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hear the landlord ringing the bell for last drinks. So to wrap things up, 
Where can people go to find out more about you, your husband, your church, and pick up a copy of The Meaning of Marriage and its devotional? Oh, mercy. Um, Gospel Coalition, um, gospelandlife.org would probably be your best bet. That's um, an organization that curates all of Tim's writing and his sermons. Gospelinlife.org. I don't know if it's org or com now. Gospel, and I work for them. Gospelinlife.com. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure that there's a valid link in the show notes. It is gospelandlife.com, and you can get you know copies of the sermons. You can get you can sign up for Lent devotionals that Tim and I have written, or Advent devotionals, or um, I think they send out monthly emails this month or next month possibly. Yeah, yeah next month of Easter, they're sending out an article that I wrote a while ago called "Trust but Verify" about the resurrection. So. Yeah, I would say gospelandlife.com would be the best place to go. Thanks again to Kathy for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for listening, particularly our Patreon supporters, and especially our top-tier supporters, Emmy, Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, David, Peter, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this interview, please share it on social media and tag us. Uh, we're on all the major platforms, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and I'm still trying to bring back MySpace. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.